glad you came out this night as we can get a chance to dig into God's Word. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, we are in Nehemiah chapter 4. We left off at verse 9, and so tonight we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 23, or 10 through the end of the chapter, Nehemiah chapter 4. Um, I thought about going into 5, but I thought we'll just take our time, and if we get done a little bit early, we can get done a little bit early. Maybe you can run home and check the debate out if you want to, or... Maybe that's why you're here. You're going, I don't want to be there watching that debate. So, uh. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I like that, Ron. <laughs> well, let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, thank you for, Lord, any time that we could gather together as your people to be in your word is such a joy. And so, Lord, we praise you for the time that we can have, the fellowship we can have, Lord. But we thank you ahead of time for how you're going to speak to our hearts this evening because we know, Lord, that your Spirit is in this place. Your Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us into all truth. And so, Lord, we just want to receive all that you have for us tonight. Thank you for uh, this book that we're studying, Lord, and the lessons we can learn from it. Bless our evening. We pray that you bless Gabe downstairs as he's teaching our youth. And the other teachers that are downstairs, Lord, instructing them, Lord, bless them as well and give these kids just a firm foundation in you and in your word, we pray. So thank you for this time. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's really been a a great book to study. I've enjoyed studying the book of Nehemiah. It's probably, I, I think, now a good idea to recap the progress that has been being made. I'm sorry, if anyone needs a Bible, Greg was up with waiting for me to say that. All right, let's pray again, then, I guess. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> it's a great book to be studying. And I think we need to recap a little bit of what, what's been going on with Nehemiah towards the rebuilding of the wall. We're told in verse 6 of chapter 4 here that the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. So in other words, they reached the halfway point. The job was half finished, which when you hit that halfway point, In any work of God or in any Christian experience, I think that's the hardest place of all to be in. So we come to Nehemiah 4, verse 10, and what we see is an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament truth. Look at verse 10 now. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. Cross-reference, if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, when Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side, Yet not crushed, we are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. It's a comforting thing for me, and I think it is for every believer as well, to be able to turn to the Bible, to turn to scriptures, and to see that all throughout history, men of God who go out in the service of God have been confronted with the same problems that we face constantly today. I mean, here, without question, is Nehemiah, called by God, commissioned by God, by the king, rather, having secured, you know, an army of helpers to work upon the wall, who now finds himself faced with discouragement of every possible kind. I mean, it first seemed like everything was going wonderful. The king was glad to give Nehemiah whatever he needed for his journey, whatever he needed for his own personal home to build there, send him on his way to Jerusalem. Once he got there, Nehemiah prayerfully looked over the ruins, soon had this great army of people ready to shoulder the burden of the rebuilding process. 
But as so often is the case, immediately following a time of blessing, the enemy counterattacks. Now, we looked at last time the attacks from the outside, mocking them, making fun of their wall, even saying things like verse 3, a fox could break down it if it climbed on it. And so, you know, we, we saw that last week the people, they, they, they came together because it says that they had a mind to work, a heart to pray, and an eye to watch. And so for the time being, the outside attack, the enemy was being held back. But again, they're at the halfway point. And what we find is even more serious than the attacks from Sambalot and, and Tobiah and his buddies are the attacks internally. Because whenever believers begin to make ground, to move ahead, there will always be two types of attacks towards us, one external and the other internal. And what we see here is that the internal trouble is about to begin. Building the wall was no small task. Building the wall all of our life, building our Christian walk, walking the Christian walk, fulfilling the ministry that God has called all of us to, and maybe it's been more than you bargained for when you first accepted Christ as your Savior. Why? Because you're going, Man, this is difficult. I thought the Christian walk was supposed to be easy and that life is difficult sometimes. I found the story about a family in Darlington, Maryland. Edith had eight children. One Saturday afternoon, she was returning from a neighbor's house and she walked into her own home. Five of her children were huddled in a circle. As she slipped close to see what all the commotion was about, she couldn't believe her eyes. In the middle of the circle were seven baby skunks. Edith Edith screamed at the top of her lungs, Children, run! Each kid grabbed a skunk and ran. (laughs) Have you ever tried to solve some problem only to have it blow up in your face? I mean, Nehemiah, the problem that plagued Nehemiah may be the problem some of you are facing in your walk with Jesus this evening, and that problem could be discouragement. I mean, you can almost hear Nehemiah saying, hey guys, how's it going? How's working on the wall going? And then Nehemiah gets these wonderful, encouraging words. I'm being sarcastic. Look at verses 10 through 12. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. And I can hear Nehemiah going, thanks a lot, but that was real encouraging. But what we see here first is that the problem begins with the people of Judah. Now remember, God had appointed this tribe to lead the rest of Israel. We know that David was from the tribe of Judah. We know that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. The name Judah actually means praise. Judah was to be, to be the tribe to bring the good news. And, and so the last place in the world that you need to hear discouraging words from are from the people of God who are anointed by God to, to bear the promises of God. But that's what we see happening here. I mean, think about how depressing it would be for you if every time I got up to share, and you guys come in on, on Wednesday or Sunday, and I said, oh, you know, the ministry is so hard. It's just a rough life that I have. And, oh, man, this is bad and this is bad. But don't get me wrong, my life is not like that. But if that's all I talked about, the last place you'd want to be is here in church. Why? Because the last thing people in the world need to hear and see is you and I walking around discouraged all the time. Well, we see this discouragement continues. Verse 12 tells us that that another source of discouraging words were coming to those working on the wall. But notice who they were coming from. They were coming from the Jewish people who lived nearest the enemies of Israel. Verse 12 says, So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them... These are the enemies of Israel that came and told us you know, they're going to kill us. See, it was the ones who were living closest to the enemy 
that was hearing all these threats, all these insults, and then passing them on to those working on the wall, saying things like, oh, these people are going to kill us. They're going to put a stop to the work. Man, they're going to kill us. I mean, I know you're working on but they're going to kill you. They're going to get ten times, verse 12 says, they kept saying it. We're going to be wiped out. We're going to die. And here's the point. The source of discouragement often comes from the people who live closest to the enemy. Does it not? Let me say that again. The source of discouragement often comes from the people who live closest to the enemy. Who's the enemy of our souls? Satan. Who's the enemies of our Christian walk? Well, we know it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so in order for us not to be discouraged, we need to keep far away from the enemy, from the things of this world and the lures of the enemy. I love what the psalmist writes in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in the season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Why? Because, you know, he's not in the path of sinners. He's not in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the Lord. Or Psalm 91.1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Because if you're not abiding in Christ, and instead you're hanging out around or near the enemy of our souls, the world, the flesh, the devil, it's going to have an effect on your life. There's going to be fear. There's going to be hopelessness. There's going to be discouragement. But on the other hand, if you're abiding in Christ, abiding in His Word, abiding in His presence and prayer, you're going to easily recognize that you are under the shadow of the Almighty, the Almighty God, and there's no need to be discouraged. There's no need to fear. But again, if we're walking close to the world and in the things of this world, you're going to be affected. Here's another point I want to make. If you're one that is prone to discouragement, then the last place in the world you need to be are with people who preoccupy themselves with endless streams of discouragement. I mean, I don't know how Winnie the Pooh and Tigger can handle Eeyore all the time. You know, it would just bring me down. Life is hard. Life is miserable. Woe is me. It's like, snap out of it. You're saved. You have Jesus. Yeah, yeah, we go through trials and tribulations, but we also live under the shadow of the Almighty. We've got nothing to be discouraged about. So those working on the wall, discouragement was coming first from Judah and next from the people who lived closest to the enemy. Now, no doubt Nehemiah would have expected trouble from Sambalot and, and the rest of them, but, but what a letdown it must have been for him as Judah came to him with all this discouragement. And how easily it would have been for Nehemiah to go, man, you're right, what a bummer. I'm just, you know, I don't, I don't need this. I'm going to go back and be the cupbearer to king of Persia. You know, I got treated pretty nice there. What's interesting is that we don't read anywhere that Nehemiah ever had those types of thoughts. Alan Redpath says this concerning, concerning this. Uh, a man called of God is sure of himself in the sense that he is sure of God's enabling. And even though he may have to stand absolutely alone, retreat is never in his vocabulary. I like that. But with that said, what a powerful weapon that is of the enemy as he shoots his darts of discouragement our way. What are some causes of discouragement? Well, go back to verse 10 for a minute. Judah says, The strength of the laborers is failing. So fatigue, weariness, burnout, loss of strength. Look closely at the word failing. Chuck Swindoll writes, The original text says, Stumbling, tottering, and staggering. I mean, these people, they've been working a long time. 
and they're getting tired. I mean, how, how long have they been working? Well, verse 6 tells us they were halfway through. I mean, the whole wall was joined together half its height. You know, so the newness had worn off. When do you get sick of a new car? About halfway through the payments, right? You know, or when do you quit a project? Usually halfway through. You're painting a house and, oh, this looks great, this looks great. And you look down the wall and you're going, oh, man, I got so much more. I, I want to quit. You know, when do you want to quit? When you're halfway up the mountain. How many people go halfway up and say, I think the Lord is leading me to go back down the mountain. You know, it used to be when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Now it's when the going gets tough, the tough quits and finds another job someplace else. But I, but I understand that life can be difficult. It can be hard, especially those uh, with illnesses. I think there are only a few things more debilitating than a long-term illness or sickness, and often discouragement can come and, and when we face physical or mental or emotional fatigue. They can bring about depression. Someone defined depression as deep discouragement marked by sadness, inactivity, difficulty in thinking and concentrating, a significant loss or increase in appetite, and time spent sleeping, feeling of restlessness, hopelessness, impatience, irritability, unnecessary self-criticism, feelings of guilt, true or false, unexplained mood swings. Add to that, in verse 10, on top of that, there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall, he says. So discouragement brings exasperation. That word rubbish means debris. I mean, have you ever worked and worked and worked that there's still so much trash in sight that you go, I haven't accomplished anything. Maybe it's laundry, ladies. You know, man, you fold and you fold and you wash and you look and there's still another pile of laundry there. The workers looked around and all they could see was mountains of rubbish, dirt, broken walls, broken stones, garbage. You know, rubbish and discouragement. They're the Siamese twins. I think some of you have been walking with the Lord a long time, but the longer you walk, the more garbage that you know, we seem to encounter. Someone gave this illustration. A mother of a child who changes diapers like 20 times a day and says, how can a baby go through that many diapers? But they rarely look at the bright side. At least all the plumbing is working in the baby. When we look at the mountain of diapers, we lose sight of the joy of having a baby. See, we lose, uh, when you get discouraged, you lose faith. You lose confidence. What does the loss of strength and the onset of fatigue bring? Well, again, the loss of confidence. You know, I don't know if I'm cut out to be in this ministry. I don't know if I'm cut out to be this husband or this wife or this ministry leader or this servant. And the workers get weary. They voice their utter lack of confidence by saying we ourselves are unable to build the wall. Basically, we've bitten off more than we can chew. And what does that, that leads to a loss of vision. Without a vision, the people perish. But again, the work was half over. They were almost done. They built it halfway up. But because remember, the people had a mind to work. But now the enemy came in. And they lost their hearts. You know, when you lose faith and confidence, you lose the heart in it. You lose heart, you lose motivation, you get discouraged. Why even try? Why bother? An empty feeling wells up inside of you and the emptiness is overwhelming and frightening and you get the feeling that you'll never catch up. Horrible. God bless you guys. We'll have a good night. No. <laughs> There's got to be some good news here, you know? I mean, you know, that's why the Apostle Paul does tell us this in Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we will not lose heart. See, they needed to be redirected. They needed to be encouraged. And we're going to get to that in a moment. I just had to add some encouraging words here because we've got one more discouragement stuff to look at. One more before it gets better. Uh, look at verse 11. See, they were growing fearful. It says, Our adversary said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. See, that's the, the scare tactics of the enemy that they lose today. Loss translates to fear. Oh, I may lose my job. 
If I lose my job, I can't provide for my family. If I can't provide, what am I going to do? And you get fearful. So the workers of the wall became discouraged when their lives and their jobs were at risk. I mean, for most of us, you know, our job and our family, it's our security. Anything that threatens them threatens us. And you might think discouragement is only for the carnal or the weak or the wishy-washy Christian, but, but we all deal with discouragement. And sometimes God allows the things we trust and rely on to be challenged so we will trust and rely solely upon Him. And sometimes hardships and discouragement and disappointments can mean God is ready to take us to a whole new direction, one that includes trusting Him. Such was the case with one of the greatest spokesmen for Christ that English-speaking people ever heard, Charles Spurgeon, who admitted to having bouts of great depression and discouragement. Listen to his words. He says, Before any great achievement, some measure of depression is very usual. Such was my experience when I became a pastor in London. My success appalled me, and the thought of the career which seemed to open up so far from elating me cast me into the lowest depth out of which I uttered my misery and found no room for gloria in excelsis. Who was I that I should continue to lead so great a multitude? I would betake me to my village obscurity or immigrate to America and find a solitary nest in the backwoods where I might be sufficient for the things that were demanded of me. It was just then the curtain was rising on my life work. This depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. Interesting. So how are we to deal with discouragement? Well, I tell you what doesn't work. Ignoring the problem. That doesn't work. I like Chuck Swindoll's illustration of a flat tire. He says you can ignore a flat tire, but it's not going to go away. Drive on a flat tire, all it's going to do is ruin the rim. Drive on the rim and you're going to ruin the axle. Drive, drive on the axle, you're going to ruin the car. You can pray when you get a flat tire, but you still need to put air in the tire. You have to fix the flats. So what did Nehemiah do? Finally, the good news. Finally, the encouragement. Look at verses 13 through 15. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I rose and said to the nobles, to the leaders and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember, the Lord is great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing that all of us returned to the wall everyone to his work. He wanted to just a loud applause. Amen. All right. I love it. Why? Because Nehemiah united the people around the same goal. We will complete what we have started. The builders had been scattered all over Jerusalem working with mortar, stones, and such like that. They were separated from their families. So what does Nehemiah do? He says, let's bring the families together. Okay? They gave, gave each one a, a common goal. Preservation. We will survive as the old 70 son says, well, I will survive. Verse 13, he says, I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. See, he turned their attention away from themselves and their discouragement onto their enemy. Think about that. Nehemiah changes the focus of self-pity into self-preservation. Guard your homes, protect your family. We need to keep going here. Because, listen, our homes should be a place of comfort and hope. Our home should be a place where we live and, and not struggle to stay alive. The home should be a source of hope and spiritual sustenance and true love. So for Nehemiah, he regroups and for a period of time, he, he does a focus on the family moment. You know, let's everybody focus on the family here. But I want you to notice something about this. Verse 17 says that all of us return to the wall, 
everyone to his work. You know what it tells me? That the work had stopped for a short time. Not because they abandoned the goal, but because the discouraged sometimes need a rest. Sometimes the best thing you can do is take a break and rebuild your home. Rebuild your family. Do we need help at the church? Sure, absolutely. But what good are you, you know, to be if, if your home is in a mess? What good are you going to be to the church if you have no time to spend with your family, your husband and your wife and your kids? But, but then he says, don't forget where your strength comes from. And I love verse 14. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah took charge and commanded them to get their eyes off of themselves off the garbage and onto the Lord. Listen, a true leader must turn people to Jesus. They must point people to Jesus. Not to this program or this help over here, but to Jesus. Nehemiah says, remember the Lord, great and awesome. What does that mean? Well, uh, you begin by calling to mind the things the Lord has said to you in His Word. You begin by focusing on the promises of God. I think of a verse that the Lord gave me almost 18 years ago not knowing whether the Lord is calling me to pastor here or not, to move from California, give up a job of 17 years, and, and, and come here, and I'm thinking, Lord, I, I don't know, you know. I don't know. I mean, I do or not? And, and the Lord gave me this verse in Joshua 1, 8, and 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Man, I take that verse, and when I face times of discouragement, when I'm going through difficulties, I go, man, Lord, you gave me this verse. You gave me this. It's a promise, and I remember, Lord, you're great, and you're awesome. I remember his word that he gave me to be strong and courageous and not give up. In other words, remember who the Lord is. Remember his character. Remember his promises. Remember his love for you. Then memorize those scriptures so you have it to defend the attacks of the enemy. Do you know what discouraged people think about most? Themselves. No wonder discouraged people love psychology. It's, it's a field devoted to their three favorite people, me, myself, and I. Nehemiah says, get your focus off of yourself and get back in the battle. And they did. They returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Then in verses 16 through 18 we read, So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens, loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction, and with another held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. I love this, because they didn't sit back and just go, oh, you know what, God's awesome in power, he's going to protect us, so we don't need to do anything. No, with one hand, they worked at construction. With the other, they held a weapon. They trusted in God, but they were prepared for the attacks of the enemy. Yes, God will protect us, but we have to do our part as well. So they fought the enemy. Who is our enemy tonight? Sometimes it's the flesh. You know, our own thoughts can take us captive. Thoughts cause that discouragement. How do we fight? Second Corinthians 10, 5. We should be casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity of the obedience of Christ. How do you, how do you fight the enemy of your own thoughts? Thoughts of discouragement. Well, that's what Nehemiah was calling the people to do, to maintain their balance in their thoughts as well as their deeds. And it begins in right thinking. 
And right thinking, then we can put into practice the remove and replace formula to get rid of the the, the wrong thinking and and start putting the right thinking in our minds. Because there's a lot of good things we need to be thinking about. Remove that list of discouragement, all those things that that you're looking around going, man, this is a bummer, this discourages me. And think on the things that Paul tells us to think about in Philippians 4.8. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are, are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on those things. That's taking every thought captive and replacing it with the things of God. But you see, you not only have to think right, you have to act right. Again, with one hand they worked at construction, the other hand they held a weapon. You must fight. We must fight for our family, for our church, for our life, for our ministry. But again, our battle is not physical. Don't, don't mistake it. You know, it's, it's spiritual. We pray. We seek the Lord. We fast. In this upcoming election, there's a battle going on. Are, are we fighting? Are we fighting for our family? That is, are we praying for our country? Are we seriously, you know, looking at this? Are we fasting? That's a battle we're facing. Because some things are worth fighting for. Again, the balanced Christian should both build and battle. We should pray and battle in prayer, but also, you know, get out and vote. You know, let, it, let our views know. And we have in our hands, we have the English Bible because someone is willing to fight your right to read the Scriptures in a language you can understand. Wycliffe was a builder and he was a fighter. When, his, when he died, his enemies burned his body and sprinkled his ashes in, in the Times River in London and said, forever we're rid of, of Wycliffe. So his enemy thought. They thought wrong. The product of his labor, the fruit of his ministry, is the English Bible because he did more than fight. He remained at the task. I like that. Now look at verses 19 and 20. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So now Nehemiah sets, next sets up a place to rally. And the place Nehemiah chose is the place where the trumpet sounded. The purpose of blowing the trumpet was to sound the alarm. In other words, when the going gets tough, we need to gather together at the sound of the trumpet. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. How can we apply this to us personally this evening? Well, here it is. You don't need to deal with doubt. You don't need to deal with opposition or discouragement. You might think, but I am. I'm alone. My husband's not there for me. My friends are not there for me. Family's not there. Sad to say, sometimes my church is not there for me. But that was a problem before Nehemiah came up with a solution. See, we need each other. We need friends. We need brothers and sisters who we can love and return love and we can pray for one another that we don't fight this alone. Listen, the trumpet is blown every Sunday morning. Trumpet is blown every Wednesday night. The trumpet is blown for the men and the ladies every other Tuesday night and Thursday mornings for the ladies. Rally to us there. No reason to be alone. There's no reason that anyone should say, oh, I don't need anybody else. That's a warped idea of Christianity. See, the response of the healthy child of God is, I can't possibly do it alone, but if you, God, through your Holy Spirit, would give me a brother or sister in the family who can encourage me and I can encourage, we will rally around until I get through this test or this trial. There's many examples of that in Scripture. I think of, of when Jezebel was hunting down uh, Elijah and he ran under the tree in the wilderness and said, Lord, take my life. It's not worth it. I'm all alone. What did God do? Well, he fed him first. You know, He sustained him, brought him for food for 40 days and 40 nights. And the next thing you know, God says to Elijah, get up. You're not all alone, Elijah. And he gave him a friend named Elisha. And there in, in verse one King, 1 Kings uh, 
in uh, 19 says Elisha ministered to Elijah. Now, what's great about that story is that when that happened, it marked the time that Elijah really began to make tracks, when he really found his rallying point. God gave him a buddy with whom he could be accountable to, which is extremely important, as well as a friend who can bear his soul to his hurts, even his loneliness. David, the same thing. When Saul was bent on destroying David, God gave him a friend in Jonathan. Did David still suffer? Sure. But discouragement seldom weakened David's armor because of that friend. See, we need someone like that in our lives. If you don't have someone, and ask God to find your friend or make a friend. Look for, for someone you can be a friend to. Chuck Swindoll, another quote from his book, he says this, Don't give up until you can link your soul with another who has a kindred spirit, who cares for your soul and for your needs. When you hear the battle cry, come to where the trumpet is. That's where strength is. So verse 21, So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people that each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. Listen, if you want the key to being discouraged and being miserable, here it is. Live only for yourself. Use words like I and me as often as you possibly can. Think only about your needs, your desires, your wants, and your pleasures. Refuse to be be loved and to love, and you'll succeed in being miserable. What's the bottom line here? Nehemiah is asking them to serve one another. Instead of running away all discouraged, he exhorts them to, to take up the challenge to serve one another, be on guard for one another, and don't run away from the task. Finally, look at verse 23. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing, which I'm sure was a very good thing after working so hard. The point is that the intensity was so great, they really didn't even have time to go home and change clothes. I mean, even when they went to bed, they stayed at the task. They ministered to one another. They served one another. They were involved with one another. And I think that is the key for us to avoid discouragement. So if you're in that place this evening of discouragement, I would encourage you first to turn your focus onto the Lord. Abide in Him. Then secondly, turn your focus onto others. Rally with a friend. See what you can do to minister to others around you and God will bless you and give you great victory. We'll stop there tonight, chapter 5. Actually, prayer, praise, and communion next week in chapter 5 after that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you for, uh, Lord, this section of your word where we're, we're told, Lord, we're taught how to deal with discouragement, how to deal with despair. And, Lord, it's not always easy. But, Lord, you are great and you are mighty and you are powerful. And, Lord, we need to get our eyes focused on you. And, yes, Lord, this, our country is in a mess. And this election looks horrible, Lord. But our focus is on you We're not going to be discouraged. Our hope is in you. Our hope and our citizenship is in heaven. So Lord, we pray for our our country right now. We pray for uh, uh, the families here, Lord, that we would have have wisdom in voting for the right person that needs to be in office this time, Lord. That we would see the decline, Lord, uh, of of morality that's going on stopped, Lord, in, in our time. Lord, that we would see you exalted. We pray for our families, Lord, for protection on our families. We pray just for wisdom in the decisions that you give to us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your love and grace. Thank you for the hope that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand with we'll do one last song together.